0: Hi everyone and welcome to our first episode of Risk and Regulation Rundown for 2023, giving you our latest insight and analysis on hot topics in financial services risk and regulation. I'm Andrew Strange and I lead our UK Financial Services Regulatory Insights team and I'm your usual host. As we kick off the new year, we wanted to talk about some of the changes in financial services in the UK this year. With the extensive Edinburgh reforms published in December, this felt like a timely opportunity to consider the implications, the challenges, and the opportunities for firms. But we obviously don't work in a UK-centric vacuum, so we've made sure we have a guest to give us an external perspective on some of these changes. I'm therefore delighted to be joined by two guests, Conor McManus, a Director in the Financial Services Regulatory Insights team, and Michael Curtis, a partner from PwC Germany and PwC's Financial Services Legal Leader in Europe. And Michael is joining us remotely, so please do excuse any sound difference that you hear. So, morning both. Morning.
1: Hello, happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Connor, let's start with some Edinburgh reforms then. Um, we've heard a lot since last month on Brexit, dividends and deregulation. Is that what we've got?
2: Well, I mean, we'll have to see uh, about the dividend that the package um, provides to the financial services tax o- over time. Um, but But it's certainly an ambitious... Uh, scope of reforms which were announced by the government on, on the 9th of December. I mean I think there was around 30 announcements, some of which were, were re-announcements um, but you know, a huge amount planned you know, and things which will touch on almost every aspect of the financial services ecosystem from consumer credit right through to um, financial market infrastructures using distributed ledger technology. So I think that gives you a sense of the scope of uh, of the package. I mean, in terms of the, the deregulatory agenda, I mean, clearly the, the focus is to remove burdens where where possible. Um, that's not just around EU regulations. Though. For example, we've had some announcements around ring fencing, which were expected, a review of the senior managers regime, which are obviously UK pieces of regulation. But yes, a, a process which will be undertaking of looking at EU regulation and seeing whether it's appropriate for the UK market um, and making changes if, if if necessary
0: thanks Connor yeah very interesting we've seen certainly a lot of noise and a lot of attention given to to these reforms in the uk but but Michael, how much attention has there been from EU authorities and from from people on the other side of the channel on this
1: It's a great question I think there's been um, sort of different levels of enthusiasm in terms of awaiting the change um, the the change has been a long time coming so there's obviously been some relief that government in the united kingdom has decided to publish its proposals then that's where enthusiasm starts to differ in terms of the actual content of the proposals there are those that are concerned um, at a policy making level in the eu about what these changes mean for the uk's position in the wider sense of europe so not just um, europe and and not just europe and european union um, but certainly Uh, Europe outside of the European Union, and I think uh, specifically the proposal for the UK to build closer relationships uh, with with Switzerland, as well as a couple of other jurisdictions. So I think there's some concern there, and I think we'll we'll touch upon that later on. Um, But there has also been a sense of relief that some of the changes that have been proposed are perhaps not as drastic as would have been feared. And so now policymakers in the European Union are also assessing what this divergence might mean, uh, whether there are any lessons that can be learned from the UK's current proposals, and ultimately, how much the UK is going to make a success of what they're putting forward. because of course, whilst the the Brexit dividend perhaps remains to be seen in full, um, divergence is an opportunity for the EU itself to consider what it will do next. and also, consider how it will engage with UK policymakers as both sides of the English Channel and the Irish Sea uh, move to a much more cemented relationship post-Brexit.
2: Thank
0: you, Michael. Okay, so Connor, let's have a look at some of the specifics of these sensible and pragmatic proposals. What are the standout announcements for you and what impact could they have?
2: Yeah, I mean, so as I said, it's a, you know, there's, a, there's a huge amount in uh, the announcements uh, from the 9th of December, but I think you can probably group them into three categories. Uh, one is, as I mentioned, looking at pieces of UK regulation um, and questioning whether they are still appropriate and whether burdens can be reduced in them. So probably the most notable examples there are uh, the ring fencing reform. So that's about bringing those banks which have very limited trading activities out of scope of the regime, increasing the threshold in which uh, a bank comes into scope of the regime, and looking at over a longer t- time period, the, how it aligns with the re- resolution regime. Uh, we've also got the announcement of a review of the senior manager's regime. So this is, uh, you know, a kind of iconic part of the UK regulatory framework in some way has been enforced for a number of years. But the government asking the regulators to review whether uh, it could be made more more proportionate. We don't know where that's going to go, but that's a, that's a very interesting development. I
0: was going to say uh, the announcement of a re- review doesn't sound like the most tangible of, uh, of actions by any means, to take.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I think that's the the, you know, the review is committed for Q1, so we'll, we'll get some further details quite soon. I would have thought. Um, so that's the first bucket of, re- of reforms, the kind of UK sp- specific stuff, um, and then and then you've got, as I said, the the process of looking at EU-derived regulations, all those acronyms that we're also familiar with, Solvency 2, MIFID, PRIPS, and, and asking the question of whether um, those EU-derived pieces of regulation are appropriate for the UK market and whether there are changes that, that should be made. Some of the, the areas we know that they, they they're looking to change, so there's been A lot of focus on solvency too. The Wholesale Markets Review has been focusing on MIFID, and we've got quite a lot of detail in that space. We know, for example, that the government is committed to getting rid of preps and replacing it with something else. But there's going to be a much broader process of looking at all of those pieces of EU regulation over over time and looking at whether changes need to, to be made. And then I think the third kind of group of announcements which are really interesting is around... Um, responding to, ne- to technological change and innovation, and particularly around change and innovation in wholesale markets. Um, so I mentioned that you know, they're, they're launching an FMI sandbox, which will allow FMI's to, uh, to use technology like distributed ledger technology. That's quite interesting. They're looking at how settlement of trades can be made more efficient, for example, as well. Again, quite an interesting development. And you can see that this is the government really looking at how can they make UK capital markets as tech-enabled and innovative and as and efficient as possible, uh, th- th- and these are you know these are this is a r- really interesting area of focus, but it's one that's going to take a while to to really come to fruition. I think. Okay, thank you. Very interesting. Uh, and Michael, obviously,
0: clients are operating in in multiple regimes. So, what are you actually hearing from your clients in, uh, in Europe in response to the UK's regulatory agenda?
1: Well, I think the the main discussion is currently how much divergence will actually translate into increased costs of how you do your business on both sides of, of the English Channel and the Irish um, that, Sea. That's something which is certainly becoming quite tangible across a number of areas where there was historically close alignment, um, in particular on the securitization regulation, how that was implemented on both sides with Brexit already on the cards. And where both policymakers um, were working together towards a common goal, there now seems to be quite a degree of divergence. So whilst I fully agree with, with Connor that there are a number of elements which will perhaps be UK specific in focus and reforms will be designed to alleviate market burdens and operating costs in the UK, that indeed could drive up costs for a number of firms regardless of where they're headquartered. So there's, there's a number of sort of questions of change is good, but change is costly. And just how much will that actually translate into efforts that perhaps certain firms do not want to duplicate, but but need to. Um, and then there's the policymaker side of the discussion, which has been quite clear with a number of financial services firms, um, certainly amongst the those that that are involved in the banking sector as part of the desk mapping review, which of course looked at the adequacy of uh, post-Brexit operating plans of major banks and a sense that there is still a lot of work to be done in order to meet the European Union supervisory expectations on how you operate your target operating model in a post-Brexit world. And of course, these announcements, um, whilst some of them may be welcome and some of them may Prove that uh, the EU could perhaps drive forward similar types of changes to alleviate market burden. There is still this fear amongst EU policymakers that the UK is pursuing a, a regulatory race to the bottom, which of course raises a number of political questions uh, which um, have to be worked out between policymakers in the respective forums. Um, main, main point is, you know, ch- changes of course, is welcome, but the, the price tag of that change is still. Very much with a big question mark around
2: it. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree with what Michael says there. I mean, you know, making regulation more proportionate and more appropriate and responding to market developments is is clearly the right thing to do. But there has to be quite a robust cost-benefit analysis in terms of whether making a change a change is worth it. And I think the other the other area to 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 think about here is the the time period over which these changes are going to be made. Um, so, you know, as I said, the, 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 they've committed the government and the regulators to, to to move those EU-derived pieces of regulation, which currently sit in parliamentary legislation, into the regulators' rule books. Um, that's going to be an enormous undertaking for the regulators and the industry. Um, and, you know, what they've said is that they'll try and make significant progress on that next year. Um, now, obviously, you know, that's a relatively vague commitment. But the, the, I think there does need to be a recognition that there's only so much change that the regulatory system in its broadest sense can can deal with over a short period of time. I mean on and, and also on the deregulatory narrative if you like and the discussion on that I think it is worth recognizing as well that it's not just one-way traffic here in the UK, there's also other areas where the UK is 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 continuing to be stricter from a regulatory perspective than many other jurisdictions. So a, a good example of that would be the Basel 3.1 um, proposals which the PRA published at the end of uh, November, You know they've stuck pretty closely to the Basel Committee rules, whereas the EU has moved away in a number of areas. And of course, we've got the consumer duty coming in in the UK, which is uh, you know a very robust piece of regulation. So I think the the reality is perhaps a little bit more nuanced than than some of the kind of political narratives suggest.
0: Yeah, thanks, Conor. That's really interesting. And the reality is even good change costs money. I mean, it's tough for our clients. So I mean. Clearly, the regulatory agenda extends wider than some of the Edinburgh reforms we saw at the end of last year. Uh, I feel like that kind of unblocked a number of the announcements that we saw uh, towards the end of the year. So we saw the Bank of England's approach to systemic risk in the non-bank sector. Um, The UK is continuing to develop its approach to critical third party providers, for example. Connor, how do you see this sort of broader agenda progressing in the UK? Uh, And Michael, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on on some of these issues from, from a European perspective too.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting. I mean, you know, as you'd expect, the regulators are responding to uh, circumstances which are are challenging at the moment from from various perspectives. Um, and the two examples you you give are, are quite good examples of them responding to risks which we've seen. In the market, you know, we've had a lot of volatility in the UK in in recent months, and and that has revealed some vulnerabilities in the markets, but also innovation and technological change. So, you know, greater concentration on critical third parties, such as cloud service providers. Um, So I think it just reinforces the point that the regulators are responding to lots of different factors. And we've seen that for a number of years. And, And the consequence of that is that the regulatory landscape, if you like, is getting broader and broader um and and that's something that I think firms will just have to d- to deal with. I mean on the two specific points you, you you raise, you know, clearly the um the volatility in the gilt markets in particular uh, over the past couple of months um was was quite challenging as you'd expect the the Bank of England is responding to that and um, there's a broader non-bank agenda which is being taken forward at the international level through the the FSB but w- but we saw an announcement from the financial policy committee Uh, in December around a a stress test for the first time of of those non-bank actors in the market, uh, which just shows the the increased focus from a systemic risk perspective on that part of the market. Now, there's there's relatively little detail beyond that, but I think that just reinforces the focus. And then on the critical third party uh, piece, as I said, it's it's really about the regulators saying, um, you know, there is a, a systemic dependency in the market on certain critical third parties, uh, we need to have oversight and assurance over the uh, resilience of, of that part of the financial services ecosystem. Um, and th- so there's a, a discussion paper which uh, which closed at the end of uh, 2022 on that. We're expecting a consultation uh, in 2023 at some point. Uh, to take those proposals forward in, in, in more detail. But again, this is an example of divergence between the UK and the EU. I mean, Michael can talk about DORA, which is the the, the EU uh, equivalent to, to the, this focus in the UK, but we're seeing again an approach which is similar but a bit different between the UK and the EU, which uh, is to be expected but brings some challenges for firms.
1: Yeah, I think specifically for firms, as you say, Connor, um, whilst the what's the end destination of how you get to improving third party resilience and how you uh, document that and how you stress test that. Whilst there's common agreement on common principles, the devil's in the detail. And and that's where divergence can become quite costly. So um, for most firms, I think one of the challenges has been you know, if we take a step back, right, most of financial markets have come back um, from the the pause that was introduced by the COVID-19 pandemic to a flurry of rulemaking on both sides of uh, of the the EU-UK wider debate on what does the post-Brexit operating environment look like? And that's put a lot of challenge um, for firms. It's put a lot of challenge for policymakers. And it's put, obviously, a lot of challenge for supervisory authorities at the EU level and then at the national level. And to add to that complexity, of course, as you've already said, are the increased market volatility, some due to um, some political homegrown problems in the UK, but then obviously the wider impact of the uh, conflict in Ukraine. And so it really hasn't we really really during 2022 haven't had much of a a pause for breath Um, and firms are getting sort of smarter about how they approach a lot of what needs doing, sort of in terms of finding where are the common principles that one can establish to meet both of the rulemakers and the supervisory outcomes. And of course, there are a lot of solutions and a lot of tools that are available that are coming to fruition. I think that's where firms should be concentrating as 2023 progresses, because Uh, It's unlikely that we're going to have some sort of pause uh, anytime soon. It's unlikely that even with the UK's uh, approach to making a number of the rules more workable, that that's necessarily going to mean that compliance is going to be cheaper. Uh, It's just going to take a different form. And ultimately, once we look at the uh, divergence between the UK and the EU, that's only one set of factors. We have to obviously consider that on the global agenda, there are also different pockets of um, regulatory reform that have a have a much wider impact. So uh, developments out of the United States, but then also developments in in certain other jurisdictions, in which a number of firms might be active across uh, Asia Pacific, and all of that really um, puts firms under pressure. And getting ahead of that will will hold them in good stead to do so.
0: Thank you, Michael. Yeah, that, that that's really interesting, really comprehensive. I think it's it's interesting if I look at some of the UK changes. You know, that we're trying to get our head around how the political interaction happens with regulatory bodies in the UK in a, in a post-Brexit world. Uh, and you say no pause over 2023, but the reality is that there are EU elections on the horizon for 2024, which typically, in my experience in the past, have resulted in you know dossiers being tied up and, and finished, but not necessarily a vast amount of of new legislative activity, uh, obviously supervisory activity goes on. I mean, is the 2024 elections they on people's radars? What impact do you think it's going to have on, on the EU regulatory agenda, Michael?
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think, um, you know, the, the EU elections in 2024, the parliamentary elections, will start to become more of an issue as we head towards the middle of 2023 and sort of the preparations for parliamentary elections start and then effectively, as you say, certain dossiers are either rushed to the finish line or they're um, parked uh, for the for the new legislative period. Uh, one of the things that, of course, uh, was re- reviewed and, and somewhat welcomed um, amongst a number of market participants in Europe is the Swedish presidency of Um, The EU, which took up its role on 1st of January, taking over from the Czech presidency and very much promoting, at least in financial services, a degree of continuity and, of course, a a step up on the ESG agenda should come as no surprise. That's a change. Um, But there is no sort of major shocking developments on the horizon, which for once is actually quite welcome. So if you look at the Uh, work programs of each of the European supervisory authorities. A lot of it is getting some of the work done that has been delayed due to the pandemic, um, getting the remainder of the Capital Markets Union 2.0, 3.0 type announcements, getting those fit for purpose and at least ready for implementation, and then tying up some of the bigger ticket items in terms of the uh, work on DORA, the work on the MIFID review, getting um, Banking union reform, moving forward, and so on and so forth. Where there is concern, it's the the, the level two uh, regulatory technical standards, implementing technical standards, and then the level three, the FAQs and the respective supervisory guidance that really uh, put the meat on the bones, um, so to speak, that need to get done. And that's where, if there is a delay, that really does become costly because then we operate in a market where yes, everyone knows what the rough. Uh, environment is supposed to look like, but the detail isn't finalized. Just to sum up on that point, I wouldn't say that the 2024 EU parliamentary elections are something that are actively on people's horizon as we speak now in January, but it will become increasingly more um, important as we head towards that uh, cycle moving forward.
0: Absolutely. And Connor, I mean, 2024 for us then. I mean, 2022 was a, a challenging year politically, but a quiet year this year and then next year.
2: Well, indeed. I mean, as, as Michael alludes to, we've we, you know, there's a, a elections coming up in, in the not-too-distant future here as well. And I think, you know, there's kind of, for financial services, two main consequences of that. I mean, that's one of the drivers of why the government is is trying to make as much progress as possible on its uh, regulatory agenda is is the election. But also it's going to become more and more important to understand the Labour Party's position on, on financial services regulation. Um, you know, uh, if the polls are to be believed, there's a strong chance that, that they might uh, they might be the next government. Um, so that obviously means that their position on financial services becomes ex- extremely important.
0: Okay, and uh, just finally then, so looking slightly longer term, the political tone between the UK and the EU seems to have improved slightly actually in, in recent times. Uh, what are your own views on this and whether it could unblock any discussions on financial services between the UK and the EU um connor what, what was your perspective
2: yeah i mean i think as you say the the tone seems to have improved uh in in recent weeks which is is obviously a, a good thing but we all know that the the big political issue uh which is overshadowing the relationship is 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 northern ireland um you know if they can find an agreement on that will it unlock progress on on financial services Potentially, uh, but I think the question is, unlock what? Um, you know, there's been a, an MOU which was agreed between the UK and the EU on financial services uh, some time ago. It was never signed because of the political issues, political problems. Um, you could quite easily see that that might get published. Would that materially change the relationship on financial services? a little bit but not a huge amount you know it, it, then you get into questions around equivalence and then i think you know that's a, a much bigger question as to whether um once the political and hopefully once the political relationship normalizes whether the eu would be prepared to engage on equivalence uh, i think that would be well, remains to be seen i'm sure michael will have views on that
1: yeah i mean as a, as a long-term londoner um, now back in on the continent for uh, certainly the past nine years, um I'm going to be a little less optimistic about uh, what Connor, what you've just said. I think, yes, the tone has become more civil. It has certainly become more about focusing on doing good things for people that need good things done for them. Um but I don't think that's going to translate into unwinding the position that the eu has quite rightly put in place with respect to financial services the, wow. the eu position still remains somewhat frustrated with uh, with a number of um, aspects of how certain firms in the uk have been approaching uh, what from the eu's perspective was relatively clear as the consequences of brexit so I don't think they're going to be much. Um, there will be much in the way of an olive branch being extended. Um, there may be some aspects that could be improved on. You've you've alluded to equivalence. Um, there may be some improvements on mutual recognition, or at least some soundings that would suggest that at some point in the future one could consider it. But I think that's over a much longer period than many in, in the London market would perhaps hope for. And indeed, many in the in the continental European markets equally would hope for, it because it all comes back to um, the cost of, uh, of, of divergence and how potentially with equivalence and mutual recognition that could be reduced. I think one of the aspects that will be uh, quite interesting to follow is if and when this cross-channel or cross-jurisdictional um, policymaker, uh, bridge is then fully operational, as the MOU had originally uh, proposed it to be. As, and for both sides, then actually say, well, you know, yes, we have alleviated some burdens, but we're not looking to deregulate and effectively compete with one another. We're just looking to peacefully coexist and actually drive economic growth. Because ultimately, that's what both policymakers on you know regardless of where they are in in, on the electoral spectrum um, need to account to the electorate for in terms of economic growth we still have serious issues in the european union about sustainable economic growth in a number of jurisdictions and also equality of that economic growth amongst jurisdictions and indeed the uk has its own challenges and on both sides of uh, the divide financial services have an absolutely crucial element to play into to drive that economic growth into reality. And I think there is a common will, um, regardless of whether you're in Brussels or in London or elsewhere, um, to make that happen, but just make it happen that effectively, we still operate uh, on a safe, efficient, um, and sound market base or marketplace uh, that can actually make that um, you know, tran- translate into reality for the electorate because, Ultimately, if not, the elections um, could be a, a very nasty surprise for a number of quite established uh, political parties or those that have promised reform and, and ultimately don't deliver. So I think it's um, 2023 is one busy year of consolidation, setting the scene for electoral um, debate and then elections in 2024, and then hopefully over the longer term estab- or giving more of a foundation to what is supposed to be a functioning partnership amongst the EU and, and its non-EU neighbors. Uh, but that's something which will probably take a lot longer to build than many would hope for.
0: Thank you, Michael. I think we'll, we'll focus on the, the common desire for growth there in a safe and sustainable way. That sounds like something we can all agree on. Well, thank you both for, for joining us today. Uh, that was really interesting. I think we've set the bar really high for our, our series of podcasts over this year. So so well done. Thank you. I'm not sure our future guests will be so thankful, but but it's really, really been interesting. Um, to our listeners, I hope you've also enjoyed this conversation today and thank you for, for joining us. As always, please do subscribe to future episodes and rate and review the series as it helps other listeners to find us. If you'd like to hear more from us on risk and regulation, please look out for our regular publications on our website, where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter on regulatory developments. And we'll be back next month. Thank you.